So in Paris, there's an estimated 10,000 tons of uncollected trash piling up in the streets of the French capital as unions call for more weekend protests and strike action against controversial pension austerity. So you, we have to recognize that it's not just an individual issue or, an, or just a working condition, labor market issue, but also a broader issue about government priorities. If you're not organizing, you can have the best idea in the world. You can have the most sophisticated, savvy analysis of choke points in your workplace or sector. But if you can't get together with your coworkers and do something to leverage that choke point, it really doesn't matter. Folks that are making this, these decisions are hearing from people like us and the impact that books have had in our lives. I mean, it takes a whole Union Village to put on the show, and, and uh, every year we express our appreciation for all of the amazing Union members who help bring our show to life. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Highlights from just a few of the more than 150 Labor Radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. On this week's show, from We Rise Fighting, a report on the strikes in France over increasing the retirement age. On the ILO Future of Work podcast, Janine Berg and Ivan William Jimenez discuss why key workers are undervalued. From the Heartland Labor Forum, authors from the new book, Labor, Power, and Strategy, which focuses on how organized labor can build its power to take on corporate America and win. On El Cafecito del Dia, a conversation on book bans with Noel Candelaria, Secretary Treasurer of the NEA. On Stick Together, stories of working women in Australia. And in our final segment, from the SAG-AFTRA podcast, producers of the SAG-AFTRA Awards explain what went on behind the scenes of this year's show. That's all coming up on this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. And if you like what you hear, take a moment, subscribe, share the show. It's what we call sonic solidarity. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. All right, welcome back, everyone, to tonight's edition of We Rise Fighting Labor podcast. Our first bit of news is coming from Euronews.com. The headline reads, 10,000 tons of uncollected trash in Paris as unions call for more action against pension reforms. All right, so in Paris, there's an estimated 10,000 tons of uncollected trash piling up in the streets of the French capital as unions call for more weekend protests and strike action against controversial pension austerity. Now, to be clear, last week, the French government used Article 49.3 of the Constitution, uh, meaning they bypassed Parliament in order to impose extending the retirement age from 62 years to 64 years of age. And last March 7th was the biggest demonstration in France since the general strike of 1995, with around 2 million people in the streets of France. And to give people here in the U.S. a sense of what that's like, uh, the U.S. has five times the population of France. So that would be like having 10 million people 
on the streets in the U.S., okay? So French opposition parties have now submitted a no-confidence motion in an attempt to topple uh, Macron's government over his pension reform. Unions have called for more localized protests over the weekend, with strikes are already planned for next week. So now on the flight front, flight cancellations are expected with up to 30% of flights at Paris Orly Airport and 20% of flights at Marseille. Province Airport disrupted by the air traffic controller's strike. SNCF railway unions have called for industrial actions to continue with widespread cancellations anticipated next Thursday on long-distance train routes and on the Paris Metro, while suburban rail journeys in Paris are already affected by strikes this weekend. Oil refineries have started to close down from uh, since Saturday as employees of Total Energies go on strike, actions which could eventually hit petrol pumps around the country. Unions represented like electricity and gas workers have decided to strike next week as well, calling for, quote unquote, the maximum disruption of work. On the Port de la Havre, uh, officers and sailors using who operate tugboats stayed on shore Friday, considerably disrupting all activity on the port, with container ships, LNG carriers, and oil tankers not able to enter or leave the harbor. In Calais, Ferry traffic to the UK was completely stopped on Friday morning. So there's been this massive upheaval and we're watching it. And we're reporting on this because, as usual, we report on international affairs and the international workers movement. But because we we need to take note of stuff like this. You know, we almost had a railway strike in the United States. Well, you know, when, when you look at other struggles in other nations of other railway workers or just other workers in general, you can see what the struggle looks like and what to expect and what could happen here in the US if we engage in similar struggles and similar victories, I should say. So that's where we're keeping you on top of this news of what's going on in France and in Europe. We've been doing this for weeks now. It's very exciting. We hope that some of this energy, some of this uh, labor class anger spills over into the U.S. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. We will be back again with you soon. Have a good night, everyone. Love and solidarity to all. Hello, and welcome to this new edition of the ILO's Future of Work podcast. I'm Sophie Fisher. Key workers play a vital role in our lives and in the functioning of the economies that we live in. This was one of the most important lessons of the COVID-19 pandemic. Yet during that crisis, it also emerged that many key workers face inadequate working conditions, including low pay, long hours and poor occupational safety and health. This has now been confirmed by a new ILO report on key workers, the World Employment and Social Outlook 2023 on the value of essential work. The report describes the need for better conditions for key workers as one of the most important policy lessons of the COVID-19 crisis. With me now to discuss why this is the case and what those lessons might be are Janine Berg, who is Senior Economist at the ILO, and Ivan Williams-Jimenez, who is Policy Development Manager at the Institution for Occupational Safety and Health in the United Kingdom. Welcome to you both and thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Hi, Sophie. Now, your report says that we need to invest more in physical and social infrastructure. That's part of the solution to the problem. 
What exactly do you mean by that? Can you be more specific? Okay, so one aspect is, of course, the working conditions, and we've already discussed that. But it's also about the investments that governments make. So if a hospital doesn't have enough hospital beds, if you can't finance enough physicians or nurses or other personnel in a hospital, then it's going to have repercussions on the working conditions. If you're a nurse and you go to work and there aren't enough nurses on the floor, then that means that you're going to have a greater work intensity and you're going to have burnout and you're going to leave. So you, we have to recognize that it's not just an individual issue or, an, or just a working condition, labor market issue, but also a broader issue about government priorities. And so that's why we, you know, we really try to make that link with the macroeconomic dimension. I think it's three years this month since the COVID pandemic was first declared. We now have other socioeconomic issues that have built on it. We've got inflation, we've got the cost of living crisis, we've got labour shortages in, in some areas. So presumably that all has a, an effect on mental health issues. Absolutely. And here we're talking to a more longer term investment in, in, in key workers, health, safety and well-being and more like a proactive approach and less reactive or short, based on short teams. So, yeah, I think, as you were mentioning, the situation is currently aggravated by staff shortages in essential occupations. And this really needs to be addressed in the current context of a socioeconomic recession. And we're seeing this in so many different countries throughout the world. Okay, and that neatly brings me on to the question of lessons learned and what we should take away from this country, this crisis, to help us prepare for future crises. Ivan, would you like to start on that one? What do you think needs to be done to put us in a better situation? for key workers. From a health and safety standpoint, proactive occupational safety and health, preventive measures, and I mean, in general, strengthening management systems and policies. And as I was mentioning before, this needs to include occupational health and mental health. And this needs to happen, of course, both um, national and business levels. We all know this is, of course, easy to say, but difficult to implement in, in, in practice, but well, Key stakeholders need to make sure that there is a renewed commitment to protecting workers from future crises and in particular to key workers. I think the prevention metaphor is actually a good one. So we have the prevention metaphor that works for occupational safety and health, but it's really about a prevention in general. So we live in a world of an age of crisis, right? We're going to have recurring crises. These workers will always, they're not, this, this list doesn't really change with crises. These are the people that keep our work functioning. So we need to invest in them. We need to invest in their sectors so that they can do their jobs. The way properly and they can live properly. And that way, when the next crisis hits, we're in a more, more prepared for it. So it's the glue that keeps our society together that we have to strengthen for next time. If you want to know more about the ILO's new report on key workers and the value of essential work, you will find it on the ILO's website. So for now, let me wish you goodbye. And I hope you will be able to join us again soon for another edition of the Future of Work podcast. Welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum. On tonight's show, we will talk about labor strategy and choke points. John Womack Jr., who was extensively interviewed in the book Labor, Power, and Strategy, argues that American labor needs to focus more on finding the choke points in the economy in order to rebuild the power of the labor movement. We'll explore Womack's ideas with our guests and ask what significance they could have today so I'm going to do the introductions. Pete Olney, Jean Bruskin, Carrie Dahl, and Katie Fox-Hotis, welcome all of you, and thanks so much for joining us. 
We're going to start with you, Pete. I don't know how briefly you can do this, but can you explain how both you and John Womack define choke points in the economy and any particular good or service where you can describe one? Choke points, as the name implies, are places where production of goods or the movement of goods are cut off or choked off. Some industries like maritime logistics, the docks, or railroads can close down the whole economy. And some specific occupations can be choke points. John Womack identified train dispatchers as a strategic position on the Mexican railroads. So you can go macro or micro, and these positions don't necessarily mean skilled workers, but workers whose work is so essential that things are brought to a skidding halt. Katie, you wrote in your piece in the book that you don't see that strategic power and focusing on choke points is fundamental. You think the associational power of unions and other other groups who are affected is important. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I think I just put it slightly differently. I think that organizing always comes first. So you need to get organized before you can use, or, organizing is the basis of all worker power. And if you're not organized, you're not going to be able to exert power in any direction. So I think organizing is step one. And step two is choke point analysis. It's, okay, now that we have this base of organization and we have some power among us because of our organization, where do we put our energies? What's the direction? What's the timing? What's the place and the means that we put our energies? And that's where choke points come in. If you're not organized, you can have the best idea in the world. You can have the most sophisticated, savvy analysis of choke points in your workplace or sector. But if you can't get together with your coworkers and do something to leverage that choke point, it really doesn't matter. And I see, I've seen this quite a bit in my research. I'll just give one example. The Chilean dock workers have these incredible national strikes in 2013 and 2014, major victories, but they were effective those years because of years and years of organizing that had predated that. And the biggest problem that they had was that they weren't united nationally. And so there was really strong organization in certain ports, but when those ports would go into dispute, the ship owners would just would just move the cargo to another port, right? And so that would completely undermine the tremendous strategic power that you would think dock workers would have because of the nature of their industry. And so it was only by doing the slow, difficult work of uniting the ports across the country into a national organization where they had a very strong agreement that none of them would accept diverted cargo from other ports, that they were able to take advantage of that choke point. And this principle, you can imagine how it could play out across any number of industries. So that fundamental organization, unity of the work workforce, agreeing to to, to work in common, that's prior to being able to take advantage of choke point. Okay, right. thank you all very, very much. I really appreciate this discussion. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. Bienvenidos. Welcome to El Cafecito del Día. Brought to you by the Labor Council for Latin American Advancement, our conversations are inspired by the moments of togetherness that nuestra comunidad shares over un cafecito. Hola, my name is Maria Hernandez, and today we will be discussing the recent wave of book bannings that have taken root across the United States. In 2022, 
we saw a 250% increase in the number of proposed bills related to book bannings. Today, we'll discuss the impact these bans are having on teachers, parents, and students across the country. Here to help us unpack this is Noel Candelaria. Hola, Noel. Noel, can you help us understand how these policies are impacting educators across the country? Unfortunately, it seems like it's not just a tax on teachers and the professionalism that they bring to make their best professional judgments and decisions as educators to find books that are not just interesting, but to where our students can see themselves reflected in the stories and the literature and the art that many times accompany, especially some of our younger readers who can see beautiful artwork of illustrations of children that look like them, professionals who look like them. Unfortunately, the, the banning books that we are seeing are primarily targeting students of color and they're targeting black authors, LGBTQ plus authors, authors that are writing stories about what they had to overcome when we are no longer able to teach history in its complete truths. It robs us of the opportunity to be able to learn from the mistakes that we've made as a nation. And so that we don't continue to set ourselves up to repeat those mistakes. But I think even beyond that, it strips away people's humanity, which at the end of the day, when we are not able to learn the full experience of an individual, regardless of their race, gender, ethnicity, when we rob others from learning about different cultures and people as humans, we really are robbing the nation of what it means to live as a nation of one and community with each other, not just in our neighborhoods, but across this country and really across the world. How do you think not having access to books that share these diverse stories will impact students of color, immigrant students, LGBTQ plus students. When you see the amount of social emotional learning support that our students need right now more than ever, I think this pandemic has just really exacerbated that. I think about our students, LGBTQ plus students who are already, when we think about suicide rates and when we think about how they are impacted because they're being not only ostracized with all of these other bills that are coming up. And now when you take away books where they can see themselves reflected and see others who are adults now who were able to overcome the challenges of policies we had, you know, even 20 years ago where they were not allowed to be themselves publicly as public as they are now. And for some of our LGBTQ plus students, it's literally the difference between life or death. And so for me, it's really heartbreaking. I just don't understand how some policymakers can do that and not think about the impact that it has on children. I love reading stories about our, a lot of our dreamers and all the professions in which they venture and the successes that they're having. That for our immigrant students to be able to see, wow, they came to this country not knowing a lick of English. I didn't know any English till I started in kindergarten. And to see some of the dreamers who came here in middle school or high school and were able to take all the opportunities that were given to them and have successful professional careers for them to be able to read about that and give them that hope, that inspiration that it gives their kids when they're feeling beat down sometimes by a system that is not fully investing in them yet. These books give them that hope and that opportunity for them to be able to dream bigger than they ever imagined. We know book banning is just a symptom of a broader disease. It's clear we need to take action to protect our community. What can and should unions and organizations like LACLA do to push back against the whitewashing of our country. My recommendation is to find your local educators union, find your local teachers union and partner with us because our fight is on so many fronts. And so all of our affiliates are connected at the local, state and national level so that organizations like LACLA and parents and the community as a whole can join us as educators. If they go to 
nea.org slash action. This is where they can learn of all the different issues that they can join us on and take action with us, whether it's in Congress or we can connect them to our state or local affiliates to join us in this fight, because it's going to take all of us, not just pushing back and fighting against, but also sharing our own stories, because there is so much power in stories. And oftentimes, folks that are making this, these decisions are hearing from people like us and the impact that books have had on our lives. When they're able to hear from us about what it means to take away a specific book from a classroom, then we're able to change the narratives of who this is really impacting. We really encourage everyone out there to join us. Noel, the time you spent with us helped to sweeten lo que a veces seems like a bitter cup of coffee. And as we all know, once you wake up and smell the cafecito, you just can't go back to sleep. So on behalf of LACLA, thank you for sharing your wisdom and your knowledge. Hasta la próxima. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the SAG-AFTRA podcast. I'm Duncan Crabtree Ireland, National Executive Director of SAG-AFTRA. And I am Ben Whitehair, Executive Vice President of SAG-AFTRA. The 29th annual Screen Actors Guild Awards took place at the Fairmont Century Plaza in Los Angeles in February, honoring some of the year's best television and film performances. The show streamed live on Netflix's YouTube channel, thrilled to be joined by two people instrumental in putting together such an entertaining show. John Brockett is the executive producer of the Screen Actors Guild's Awards, and this is his second year as executive producer of the show. We are also joined remotely by Matt Roberts, an Emmy Award-winning producer and writer for the 29th Screen Actors Guild Awards. Welcome to you both. Welcome. And by the way, Matt, congrats on your Writers Guild Award nomination as well. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. I'm so excited to dive into this year's show for anybody who has seen it or even the clips. I just think it was truly outstanding. Most people don't know what it takes to put on a show like this. You know, what what is the writing that goes into it? What is all that? So I guess I'm curious, John and and Matt, you know, what what is that process like that gets us to the final the final show that everybody gets to see televised? I mean, that's a we could be here for days. But I think, you know, in terms of the the collaboration, we got really lucky this year with talent because they, in several instances, they were really invested in what they were doing. What comes to mind is Emily Blunt and Jason Bateman, too. They they worked with our writers on a, on a really great bit. Okay. Hello, Jason. Hello, Emily. And scene. Great. Loved it. Great. So good. What we've done there was an example of acting in its most basic form. Beautifully gang. simple, four-word scene to That's greet it. each other, as if for the first Tight. time tonight, yeah. when we've really been hanging out all evening. Yeah, not joking. We've been talking, laughing, yeah. catching up backstage for at least a half hour. Now. Good half hour. Yeah. Too long, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. But um, through our training and our talent, we were able to seem utterly surprised, sort of warmed it's at talent. seeing each other yeah. for the first time just now. Five actors that did slightly better work in yes. slightly longer scenes are the nominees. Nominees for female actor in a supporting role. Playback. Um, I think they pulled that off really beautifully. And that was one of the things that 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 kind of came from, I think, the initial pitch to them. And then they kind of came back with some more ideas and they were just so invested in it and they pulled it off. You know, one of the one of the great things is when you get a script back and you're like sold, this is done, this is so good, and you can kind of see it in their voices and see them kind of doing it. And then especially with Jason and 
Emily, they really just brought it to life in this truly iconic way. Maybe, um, John, you could talk a little bit about the director of the show who couldn't join us today for this podcast, although we certainly wanted her to. But uh, I know I had the chance to meet her, and I know she is certainly an icon of live television directing and uh, one of the few women who actually is a regular director of live uh, content. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Sandy Restrepo is our director and has been for the past few years. She's truly the best and one of the best collaborators in terms of being a director that I've worked with on this show. Like for instance, the seating, you know, we always need to know where the actors are for camera. That's obvious. But one of the things that she's very much into are like Easter eggs. She loves, and Jen Coyne Hurley, who's our coordinating producer, who actually does the seating on the show, loves a good Easter egg as well. And so you can kind of plant an actor next to um, another actor because of something they've worked on in the past or because of something they've said about an actor in an interview and wanting to be, you know, their best friend or joking around about something like that. And so they're both really into how to make the most of a table or a room. And Sandy really picks up on that and it, in a way that makes it feel even more intimate and more special in the room because you get these moments where these actors are either next to each other that you weren't expecting or in a way that reminds you of a film that they were in together or a TV show that they were in together. And we had very little time with rehearsal this year on the show. Our load-in is normally like 11 days at the venue that we were in. We only had four. And so she came in with two days of rehearsal time barely even that maybe it was a day and a half wow. and that's not our normal rehearsal time and she came in super prepared ready to go and just hammered through it in a way that I was stunned by well, we're really lucky to have great talent from the Directors Guild Writers Guild like you Matt for example but also I think we should acknowledge as we always do in the show that the crew the IOTSE crew and Teamsters crew and in, in this particular year as well the Unite Here food and beverage workers who are in the room I mean it takes a whole union village to put on the show and, and uh, every year we express our appreciation for all of the amazing union members who help Help bring our show to life. Yeah, it takes a village, and we're so lucky to have everybody working on the show, um, crew, staff. It, it's it, it really makes it happen. We couldn't do it without them, obviously. For more information and resources from today's episode, please visit sagaftra.org/podcast. And if you gained any value from today's podcast, please consider sharing it with someone else who might find value. If you haven't already, please tap that subscribe button and take a few seconds to rate and review this episode. And please follow SAG-AFTRA on our official social media channels. That's at SAG-AFTRA on all major platforms, including YouTube. And that's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them, use the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, edited this week by Mel Smith. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. 
You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show.